Hello, and welcome to the Breathe Easy podcast. My name is Stephanie Maximus, and today we'll be discussing the Lazarus phenomenon with our guests, Dr. Sarah Train, who is a graduating internal medicine resident at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, and soon to be pulmonary and critical care fellow at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, as well as with Dr. Jeremy Richards, who is an assistant professor of medicine and director of the Medical Education Research Lab at the Shapiro Institute for Education, also at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. Um, thank you both for joining us on the podcast today. And again, I'm Dr. Stephanie Maximus. I'm an assistant professor of medicine in pulmonary and critical care at the University of Pittsburgh uh, Medical Center and the web director for the ATS Assembling Clinical Problems. All right, so let's get started. Um, Sarah, tell us a little bit about this mysterious Lazarus phenomenon and um, how it became sort of an interest for you. Yeah, sure. So first off, thank you so much for having me on here. I'm definitely excited to be a part of this. Um, the Lazarus phenomenon was something I first heard about at the um, a really cool lecture given by Tony Brew at the Boston VA. And he basically was talking about uh, a concept of people coming back from the dead. That's the first slide, that's the um, attention getter, and it definitely got my attention. And so the concept of people coming back from the dead was something he uh, called the Lazarus phenomenon. And uh, looking into it more after the lecture, I was learning about the concept of autoresuscitation. Um, and basically that's when the heart is actually able to restart spontaneously um, without assistance and generate anterior grade circulation. So essentially a patient is dead, um, we call time of death and they're able to come back from the dead, which is pretty remarkable. Um, so that's where the interest came from and I started to dive in the literature a little bit more about it and it's still a really cool topic. <laughs> That's awesome, Sarah. So uh, in terms of thinking about this topic, have you had actual personal experience with patients who've suffered from or experienced the Lazarus effect? Um, did you see a case of it? And, and if, if not, what about it made you think that it was so interesting? Yeah, so I actually have not seen a case, um, but in looking into it in a little bit more detail, it definitely seems like it's something that um, isn't the most common thing, but it is something that a lot of uh, intensive care physicians and um, EMS providers and things do experience at some point. Um, so the <laughs> so the in thinking about why the topic itself is so interesting, I think the pathophysiology and just the physiology itself and why the uh, why people are able to essentially come back from the dead is really what intrigued me about it. It's obviously something that we don't have hard scientific evidence to say this is exactly what happens, but even just the hypothesizing and uh, kind of uh, logic, the logic behind what we think happens is what makes it so interesting to me. And because it's um, because it's sort of steeped in mythology almost, um, what's the backstory in terms of like when it was first brought, you know, mentioned in the literature and um, sort of the history behind behind this topic? Yeah, so 
Um, the concept of auto resuscitation was first mentioned in the literature in a case, a case series actually in 1982 um, by Linko et al. from Helsinki. Um, they reported a couple cases actually of patients who were pronounced dead um, only to be found later in the morgue kind of moving around. Uh, so one such case was a 68-year-old woman who had had a, a V-fib arrest and had 75 minutes of CPR uh, before time of death was called. And then 20 minutes later, uh, hospital personnel found her moving under her sheets. Um, and actually what makes this uh, patient case in particular so interesting is that after this, she was able to go back uh, to the hospital ward and two weeks later was uh, discharged home completely neurologically intact. And so the way this case series kind of talked about this case uh, said that the authors obviously were pretty stunned by this and so asked other colleagues in the hospital and they were able to find uh, two more cases that providers had seen of patients coming back from the dead. Uh, very similar with an 84-year-old who had had a VFib rest and an 87-year-old um, or excuse me, a 67-year-old with uh, an arrest who both came back around 20 minutes after CPR had been called. So um, this was kind of the first three cases in the literature that came about. And for about 10 years or so, there were maybe one to two other cases reported, but really not a lot of, um, uh, of information about it. And then in uh, 93, they, um, Bray, uh, came up with or reported a similar case of a 75-year-old who became unresponsive after a PA catheter wedge check um, and actually underwent 70 or excuse me 23 minutes of CPR and then came back from the dead and he actually called this phenomenon of the the delayed return of native circulation um, and this person coming back from the dead the Lazarus phenomenon um, based off the biblical figure of Lazarus who uh, had died and then for, was entombed. And four days later, uh, Jesus came and brought him back from the dead. So these case series early on in the 80s and 90s really uh, helped to come up with the term of Lazarus phenomenon for the concept of autoresuscitation. So Sarah, I'm so confused. How can this possibly happen? You're describing that somebody dies and, and they're getting CPR and ACLS and then the providers stop CPR. They call the code and say, we're done trying to resuscitate this person. And then you're describing minutes to hours later, they just come back to life. Yeah, it makes sense, right? No. <laughs> So it is really cool. The basically, uh, the long and short of it is we don't actually know what happens, but a lot of the speculation regarding the pathophysiology behind this comes between the intersection of three key parts of uh, great ACLS, and that's um, good quality compressions, uh, utilizing great medications, and then good ventilation. And so it's between how these three things interact, both during the code and after the code, that they uh, that it's the highest um, the highest um, likelihood of the, how this occurs. So first off, in thinking about compressions, um, we need good compressions for um, increasing intrathoracic pressure and forward blood flow. 
And as part of good compressions also comes with allowing time for recoil. So allowing the chest wall to recoil um, allows for decreased intrathoracic pressure and allows the right side of the heart to refill. So allowing for the compressions and the recoil are both key to getting the good medications that we give during the codes um, back to the right side of the heart and back throughout the body to allow it to reach the site of action. So when we add ventilation to this, which is still obviously a very important part of codes because it uh, inflates the lungs, facilitates O2 delivery and opens up the pulmonary arterial and venous vasculature, we're completing the full cardiac cycle. We're, we're allowing ventilation um, to occur. But if we're being a little aggressive with ventilation, or if patients have obstructive lung disease and they're retaining O2, we're increasing the intrathoracic pressure, we're increasing the PEEP and expiratory pressure, um, which can subsequently lead to decreased uh, blood flow and uh, return to the right side of the heart. So we're while we continue CPR, although we're doing all these great measures, we're not able to get the medications and things back to the right side of the heart. So in theory, once we stop this, once we stop the compression, we stop the ventilation, and we just kind of call the code, all those medications can actually come rushing back to the right side of the heart because the uh, increased intrathoracic pressure is decreased. And then voila, you get someone to come back from the dead. Um, you know, I love the way that you described that. And I love um, more and more reasons to uh, teach our trainees to uh, care about auto peep and to recognize the, uh, the impact of, of what we do uh, as physicians and uh, the iatrogenesis that we may cause to be aware of that. Um, what other reasons do you think it's critical for uh, intensivists to be aware of this uh, interesting thing that can happen and that we can be a part of? Yeah, so I think it's, first and foremost, I think it's an important phenomenon just to be aware of. Uh, it's not one that we can, we tend to see all that often, but in looking through the literature, there's been a lot of surveys that have been done um, that have talked to different providers in emergency medicine and intensive care medicine. And one study actually um, surveyed uh, uh, about 2,000 Dutch ICU physicians who reported, 37 of which reported witnessing otter resuscitation occur. And then another survey was done, um, which uh, surveyed pre-hospital emergency physicians in France. So these are providers who go in the ambulance with EMS um, to help with out-of-hospital emergencies. And about 45% of these uh, pre-hospital emergency physicians have actually reported this and seeing this in practice. So I think it, while it's something that it's not the most common, it's probably something that we'll see throughout our careers. Um, and it's something that's probably even underreported in the literature. Because if you think about it, no one wants to say, I called time of death and oops, I was maybe wrong, uh, which we don't really think is what's happening, but something that people could be concerned about. Um, but I also think it's, it's important, especially around um, deceased donor organ transplants, where this is where um, we have to be 100% sure that someone is dead and they're not going to come back to life. 
Uh, and a lot of hospital protocols actually have this in place that you have to allow um, about five to 10 minutes of uh, continuous uh, observations of vitals and EKG monitoring and things like that to just ensure that a patient isn't going to have an autoresuscitation event. Uh, just because obviously you can't really have someone donate organs in that situation. So taking this all into account, I think really knowing that it can happen and something to be aware of, and then also uh, knowing hospital-specific protocols to know how, you, how one has to wait uh, before time of death is called. And so Sarah, does this affect kind of how we run and how we end codes uh, for all of our patients? This idea of somebody auto-resuscitating or, or experiencing the Lazarus effect uh, said differently, uh, does this awareness of this phenomenon maybe change our practice as clinicians at the bedside at or during or after a cardiac arrest? Uh, so I think it should, and I think the literature argues that it, it should kind of change what we're doing. Um, I think especially in media and in movies and on TV shows, you see a very dramatic code, you unfortunately lose a patient, and you call time of death right there. And I think honestly, that's a lot of what we do as providers. It's a, a very emotional process, and you kind of just want it, um, whenever you're losing a patient, you want it to, to be done, and you call a time of death. But in looking at this and in looking how frequently autoresuscitation is reported in the literature, and again, accepting that the fact that it's probably underreported, we probably should be waiting about five to 10 minutes after an unsuccessful code before calling time of death. And that's based on a lot of the data that shows um, about 67 percent of the autoresuscitation that's reported in the literature occurs within the first 10 minutes. And so allowing just that additional five to 10 minutes, you're going to catch a lot of these patients who are going to undergo autoresuscitation. And I think clinically, is this a meaningful amount of patients? And even if you do catch patients who are coming back with autoresuscitation, does that mean they're going to have a meaningful outcome? And I think um, it, it does look like in a lot of the cases they can, up to uh, around 18% or so of patients actually recover after autoresuscitation. And so uh, if, in thinking about the amount of codes and things that we all go through, I think this could be a clinically meaningful amount of patients that we could potentially save by just waiting the five to 10 minutes after a code to call time of death. I think you make a good point, Sarah, about how sometimes um, the best things that we can do as intensivists is to wait um, and be a little bit patient and sort of take in the and and observe around us um, before you know jumping to conclusions and calling the code and being done with it and moving on to the next. Um, so I think uh, we can kind of add this. Uh, this Lazarus effect to our, our list of examples of situations where as intensivists, it, we should sort of take a minute, pause, take stock of what's going on with all of our staff and maybe debrief, um, maybe debrief the code um, before actually calling it final. Yeah, I agree. 
Um, well, thank you guys so much for sharing, um, sharing so much information about this interesting process with us um, and giving us the opportunity to think about a rare yet meaningful um, uh, phenomenon that we do see occasionally uh, in, in our medical practice, as well as thinking about the historical aspects of it, as well as the pathophysiology that goes into it. Um, and maybe this will change our practice just a little bit um, and make us a little bit more aware of, of how our actions actually may completely change the course of, of um, a patient's survival in some ways. Well, thank you for the opportunity to be here. And uh, just to emphasize, uh, all the credit goes to uh, Sarah Train for her hard work in uh, researching, uh, thinking about, and putting together uh, this podcast. Uh, we're excited to have had to have had her here uh, and to have uh, uh, benefited from her expertise uh, on this rare, interesting, uh, and somewhat mystifying subject. And I'm joking about how um, it was a great opportunity to use the Lazarus phenomenon to resurrect the, um, the podcast for the ATS section on clinical problems. So thank you for that opportunity as well. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode of Breathe Easy. If you like this episode, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you again and have a great day.